0: We're going to be in 1 Kings today. So actually, if you, want to, if you have your Bibles, if you want to grab them, would, probably the first passage that we'll be looking at is in 1 Kings 3. We'll get there in a few moments. Uh, but Kings, 1 Kings, uh, this is, let's put all the cards on the table. This is a sobering book. Uh, the, this is not uh, a very happy-go-lucky book. It's not a book in and of itself that outlays a lot of explicit hope. Uh, we've, we've got to dig for it. Most people would call Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, one of the more melancholy books full of miserable thoughts. And that book, the writer of it, we're going to read about his story today. So that's kind of where we're going uh, with the book of First Kings. If I need to summarize it for like a two minute devotional, uh, I would say that First Kings is really a book of a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad things. That's kind of what it is. We start with David and we end with Ahab. It's just a Cliff dive of morality that we're going to go through. First Kings takes place; uh, it's about 124 years, and it's going to cover 12 different rulers. Actually, so so First Kings was um, it was originally written. It was the Book of the Kings, and so as we would know that as First and Second Kings today, actually was Third and Fourth Kings. First and Second Samuel was First and Second Kings. It was all just this big. Chronological book of the kings. So we're kind of at this, in this writing of this giant accounting of Israel's history, uh, we're, we're kind of at the post halfway, we're just past the hump, and that's what we're looking at. But when, first, when the book of kings is being written and, and first kings being part of that, that's after 586 BC. And that's significant because that is after the time that both Israel and Judah. Are uh, brought under captivity, and so when people are reading these books, when this book is being written, it's being written for the point of showing that God is still at work because the people of Israel were starting to seriously question that uh, their nation was, as as far as a sovereign was gone. Uh, they were being under oppression, at captivity of people, and that was going to go on for hundreds more years after this book was written. But First and Second Kings actually harkens back a lot to the book of Deuteronomy, um, showing that the laws and the message behind Deuteronomy still matter. And, and the, one of the big keys there is that God's promises uh, are still valid, and that's going to lead us to what we're going to talk about today, uh, the kings and the promises of God. Uh, So, this is a 22 chapter book. We're going to cover it in a few minutes. Basically, we are going to fly through a bunch. There's a lot we're just going to treat like it's at a deli shop. We're going to go so far, just lop off and say, that's enough. We're going on to the next thing. There's going to be great accounts in 1 Kings and and people that we could be introduced to if we have more time. We're just going to go right over them. because, just for time's sake, but what we're going to look at, what we want to focus on this morning, are the promises of God and how they're carried through in this book. Now, the promises that we're going to focus on, though, actually weren't made in 1 Kings. So there's two promises that 1 Kings deals with a lot, and those are actually promises to Abraham and promises to David. In and, and other words, for those that scholars would use, that you might use in theological conversations, would be covenants. And so uh, the promise to Abraham was actually in Genesis 11, where God tells Abraham, uh, I'm going to give you a land. Uh, There you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And you, Abraham, you are going to be the patriarch of what is going to be people that are going to, as like the number of sand uh, on a seashore. And you have to understand that for Abraham, this is a pretty remarkable promise he's being given. Uh, as you'll recall, Abraham was old, uh, his wife was old, and she was barren, and they've never had any children. And so for God to uh, appear, to speak to Abraham, make that promise to him, that's a very heavy promise to make. Uh, that's not something that uh, humanly had any form of resolution. If, if it were to happen, it, all glory was going to have to go to God uh, for it to happen. Uh, and, uh, and then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is going to make a promise to David. Uh, and so David, a descendant of Abraham, but God is now going to promise, uh, your line, I'm going to preserve it uh, for all time. And there is going to be a, and in your line, there is going to be a ruler who is going to rule Forever. Your throne will be established forever. Uh, in 1 Kings 4, we actually see that uh, first the, the, the author of 1 Kings goes out of his way to point out to us that uh, the, Abraham, the promises to Abraham were actually fulfilled. So Solomon, in 1 Kings 4, he actually has this giant rule over basically all of the promised land um, from the Euphrates over to the borders of Egypt. Uh, Everything that was promised is ruling over there. And it says that the people of Israel uh, were as the sand on the seashore. So it's literally hearkening back to the promise to Abraham and saying that was fulfilled. The promise to David is a little trickier. And that's kind of one of the ones we're going to hone in on today. Because by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings and and Jesse's, I think Jesse's outside right now. Jesse's preaching on 2 Kings next week. I'm about to steal all this thunder. Just spoil it for you. Um, by the time we get to the end of Second Kings, uh, the throne, as it will, is going to be burned to ash, and the people are going to be brought into uh, captivity. The royal authority, that that part of it, David, it's going to be gone. So, how is God keeping this promise? That's what we're going to look at uh, today. So, let's dig into First Kings. We're going to go crash course again: 124 years and 22 chapters in about 20 minutes. Uh, so we'll start with the rise of Solomon. And, uh, and so 1 uh, Kings begins with David on his deathbed. And, uh, and so the next in line for succession to be king is Adonijah. That's David's fourth-born son. And so his, his firstborn, again, not to recount too much of what we've heard or get distracted from. from but from 2 Samuel, we talked about uh, Amnon, who was his firstborn. Well, he was murdered by his third-born, Absalom, in revenge for uh, his raping of his half-sister. And Absalom took vengeance and killed Amnon, and then Absalom would go on to be killed. Uh, David's second-born, Daniel, we don't hear much about him. Most scholars believe he simply died young, and we don't know much more than that. But that leaves Adonijah, uh, his fourth-born, as being the next in line to be king. And so David is on his last days, as best we can tell, and it actually kind of hints in the chapter, he's not very coherent uh, when he's in bed. And so Adonijah does this upright. He gets Abiathar, the high priest, to come out and anoint him. And he also knows that he needs a good army on his side. So he's going to go out and get Joab, who is David's nephew. And when David was alive, Joab was kind of his right-hand fixer. When something needed to be done, he sent Joab. And usually that meant that that person was going to die. Like Joab, his way of taking care of something was killing whoever was in front of him. And uh, and so uh, he got Joab on his side. And they went, Abiathar went in, he anointed Adonijah, and Adonijah had this huge feast. He invited everyone to come and take part, that he was now going to be king, except for a couple of people. He didn't invite Bathsheba, he didn't invite Solomon, he didn't invite Nathan the prophet, who was kind of the counselor of David at that time, and he didn't invite David's mighty men. Everyone else in the whole kingdom was invited to come celebrate, it was going to be this big celebration. He didn't invite them. That's key because what that means is that as soon as Adonijah's done celebrating, he's going to take care of those people, probably with Joab. And uh, so uh, if Bathsheba, gets the, Bathsheba knows how this game's played. She hears that this is going on. So she goes to Nathan, what am I supposed to do? And Nathan says, go tell David. And so Bathsheba goes tell David. While Bathsheba's in the middle of trying to tell David, uh, Nathan comes in. And he just he says, "Did you know that Adonijah declared himself king?" And this riles David up enough, where he goes, "No, it's supposed to be Solomon, like I had said and like I had sworn to Bathsheba. It would be Solomon." And so he says, so "Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go get the other priest. Uh, you're going to anoint Solomon. I want him to go into town on my mule, and I want the trumpet to shout and, and say that Solomon is king." Okay. So they anoint Solomon, they send him in on David's mule, and uh, they, the trumpet shouts, everyone hears that Solomon is king. This is a huge celebration. All of the people now come out. So while Adonijah is kind of partying with all of the uh, rich and famous in Israel, kind of the, the 1% of you will, all of the people hear that Solomon's just been made king. And so they all come out into the streets. They start parading and celebrating. It says the sound was so loud, the earth cracked. So they're in the, Adonijah's in his party. All of a sudden they hear this loud sound. There's loud celebrations. And Joab says, what's that sound? And then Jonathan, uh, Biathar's son, comes in and says, uh, and and Adonijah says, Oh, you're a bearer of great news. As he's a little inebriated, and says, Come in, tell me what tell me what good news you have. And he goes, No, which is to mean nope, I don't have any good news. Let me tell you what just happened. Solomon just got declared king by David. He rode in on David's own mule. Uh the trumpet sounded, all of the uh Israel is out celebrating. And uh I believe it's 145 or something, 149, where it says. The people quietly went out their own way, which means that in in modern English, they scattered like cockroaches. Like the moment they heard that, they were like, oh, we're in the wrong spot. They all left. Adonijah was there by himself. And so Solomon was made king. Uh, And David then uh, gives him some last instructions. And one of the things that David tells him is a reminder of uh, the promise that God gave him and says, this now falls to you. Uh, that the, the throne that will be established forever falls to you. And then David does something really regrettable. It's, it's such a hard thing to hear that a man after God's in heart, the last recording we have of him in Scripture is basically he gives uh, Solomon three names, one of them being Joab, and says, These three have wronged me in their life. Please make sure they go to the grave accordingly. And uh, that's, that's David's way. He is, as, even as a man after God's own heart, in the end, David is resorting to this sort of abuse of power that falls in line with the other kings of the world. And that's a big theme we're going to see a lot in this book, is even men who loved God and sought to follow God uh, were drawn away with trying to follow the habits and the patterns of worldly kings who did not know God. And then Solomon is going to do exactly what David said, the first chance he gets. get. And we're going to really abbreviate this story. It's actually a pretty interesting story, how it unfolds. But Solomon's going to end up, he still sees Adonijah as a threat. He's going to take care of Adonijah. He's going to take care of Joab. And he's going to banish Abiathar. He's basically staging a coup to protect his power. So even though he was God's anointed... And even though he had been given that, instead of fully trusting in it, he made sure that any immediate threats were removed and that his power was unquestioned. And that's going to bring us to 1 Kings 3. And uh, in 1 Kings 3, we're going to see where God is going to appear before Solomon and, and a prayer that they're going to have. But start in verse 1 because, again, the seeds are going to be set very early That even though we see, the Bible tells us, Solomon loved the Lord. He wanted to follow in the ways of the Lord. There was this pull to be like other kings. And there was this special pull within Solomon to sort of form these alliances and gain power through alliances. And beginning in 3 verse 1, we kind of see that seed planted. It says Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, Specifically forbidden that the king should marry uh, women from other countries, but this is his first his first marriage, as best we can tell, at least recorded. And brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. One quick side, because we're going to come back to it: the high places. So that's a big theme all the way throughout 1 Kings. I think it gets into 2 Kings some as well. But high places are where people went to sacrifice to their pagan gods, right? They went to the higher mountains, hills, put altars up there. This is where uh, they would make their sacrifices. One of the key reasons for building the temple was to have a place dedicated and consecrated for the sacrifice and the worship of Yahweh. So uh, it says here that uh, he hadn't yet built this thing. And while he's building the thing, people are around going, sacrificing in high places, however. When it kind of says that as, as, a, as a but, it's, it's sort of derogatory. If you might go, well, I mean, they're sacrificing. It sounds great. That's what it's referring to. They are sacrificing to God, but they're doing it in a pattern that's consistent with people uh, of pagan worship. But verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him this great and steadfast love and had given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God appears to Solomon in a dream. Solomon asks for wisdom. God piles onto that basically all the other things that Solomon could have asked for, the prosperity and wealth. And we see that Solomon's wisdom is seen all over. We're going to see that in the next couple of chapters, that the fame of Solomon's wisdom is going to spread out through other kingdoms and lands. People are going to come to question and learn and hear from Solomon. They're going to be so taken aback by the wisdom of this young man. But yet, the key that we're going to need to take with us as we go forward is that. Uh, and if you know how First Kings goes, you know how this ends that this wisdom is not a guarantee of success in the lord like this 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 wisdom is not going to buy him a lifelong right relationship with god and we need something more and that's what we're going to see throughout again account after account generation after generation men who are ruling are failing despite whatever they're given because it's not enough they need a savior uh, and that, and even with all the wisdom that Solomon's given, it's not enough. But that gets us a, skipping ahead. That's going to get us in the next few chapters where Solomon's going to go forth and build this temple. And this temple, again, we, we talked about its importance. It's this place. It's this consecrated house for the Lord. It was David's vision to do that. God promised him his son would do it. So part of Solomon's building the temple is God fulfilling his promise to David. Uh, but... Uh, It's also Solomon's desire to complete his father's legacy. This really comes out in chapter 8 when Solomon's kind of uh, consecrating the temple for the Lord. Uh, This was very important to him to fulfill uh, what his father wanted. Uh, To do this, again, we're going to start seeing uh, just some seeds of Solomon. We we see Solomon doing these good things, but we just see some seeds planted of some not-so-good things. Solomon needs... a a disposable workforce. So what he's going to do is he's going to draft forced labor, and that's sort of drafting a military for war, uh, a a little bit of Hunger Games tribute, if you will. Like, basically, he's getting a crowd going together and going, you, aren't you lucky? You've been selected to come help uh, build my temple. And he's going to do this throughout all of Israel. He's going to be not quite as selective with the foreigners that live in that land, uh, the Canaanites, and he's just going to go pick them uh, much much less at random and say, okay, so those of Israel that I'm drafting in to build this great temple for me, uh, they're going to be uh, basically chopping the cedar, gathering that up. Uh, the Canaanites are going to be uh, the stone bearers. So they're going to be making the brick and the stone. They're going to be carrying it. Uh, if, if this sounds familiar to you, to the book of Exodus, it should. And unfortunately, it's going to get a lot more familiar. Uh, but he starts drafting this up. And the way it worked at the time is you would work this really hard labor for a month, and then you would get two months off. And that was sort of the cycle that was happening. But the reason Solomon needed so much labor is that he wasn't just building the temple. He was also building this great house for himself. Uh, and then some other structures he was going to go on to build as well. Uh, this house he put in, uh, his wife, the princess from Egypt, this this further established his alliance with Pharaoh in Egypt. And at the end of it, Solomon's going to dedicate the temple of the Lord. And uh, this is going to be a place that, uh, that people are going to be able to come and worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. It's set aside for him. And that's going to bring us to 1 Kings chapter 9. So Solomon is going to be visited again by God. So in 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, so as a dream. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you've built. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God. Who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. And laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. In Second Samuel 7. When God makes a covenant with David, that promise that your throne will be established forever, God did not put conditions on that. He promised it. But here, when he's speaking to Solomon, he's putting these conditions. Hey, Solomon, I am ready to set you and your sons up to be rulers over this land, and it will be magnificent if... You walk in my ways, and you worship me and don't go worship out their other gods. You can tell where this is going. There's a reason this is here. There's a reason Saul, God has given this conditional promise in three, and then doubles down on it in chapter nine, uh, because now, uh, from here on out, we're going to start seeing Solomon uh, do things that would not honor God. And so that starts right away. Uh, Solomon decides that uh, he really likes this temple and he likes this house that he built for his wife. He's going to build a few more, but he needs that labor. And so uh, what he decides to do is that drafted tributary of foreigners, he's going to make them permanent slaves. And that is a direct echo from when the people of Israel were made slaves out of Egypt. Uh, he says now you 're going to build my buildings and my structures for me and and he he makes them slaves, he makes that permanent and uh, starts and why why not? Other kings were doing it and so Solomon starts this pattern of wanting to be like and wanting their respect and seeing the success of other kingdoms and deciding to be like them and This is going to go in a further downward spiral because from here. Solomon is going to take to himself and records, up until now, we have one wife, as far as we can tell. Next, the next thing we know in chapter 10, we're going to see in the number of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, what's interesting is that growing up and even in college, commonly what I would hear about this account is this idea of Solomon is just completely giving himself to lust uh, by going after, you know, basically a thousand women. Uh, what, what's fascinating about that is, yeah, that's still really fuzzy math. Uh, even if you're being uh, as generous as you can with it, what, what's really going on here is that Solomon's building for himself alliances. Uh, he's, basically, these women are simply objects to him, whether that's of lust or to another thing that he wants, an alliance with either a rich ruler, uh, a lord of a certain land. He's accumulating cities and power to himself and building alliances by marrying these people off. And these women have no personal attachment to him. There's no love. There's no covenant, which is the way that God designed this relationship to be. They're simply objects for him. Uh, And as that goes on, it's going to expand where he's going to begin uh, worshiping their gods. Because he's going to see, oh, this king, look, this, this land is growing. These structures are going up. They have fertile crops. And look at the gods they worship. I'm going to go get some of that. In direct contrast to what God gave. Now, keep in mind that God's promised him and gave him wisdom that confounded the world. Like, no one understood how wise where, or where this wisdom came from. And yet, he forsook the giver of that. Which teaches us that you can have the wealth, you can have the wisdom, you can have the prosperity and the power, and it is not enough. If we, if you think about how... Uh, how many of us have been somewhere in our lives and we think, oh, if I, whether it's more money or more time or something, like suddenly our problems would be solved. Uh, everything would be great if we could get these things. And, uh, and it's simply not enough. We need more than that. And that is the lesson that we're learning in the life of Solomon. Solomon learns that lesson. It's the entire theme of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 1, he speaks about how God put in man's heart the need and desire for something that can't be filled in this world. Because we, we, he's designed us to long for him. And Solomon did, he lost his track of that. And he tried to find it elsewhere. Now, ultimately, and we're going to go really fast now, but ultimately what that's going to lead is so- God is going to tell Solomon that uh, it is going to lead to his ruin. His kingdom is going to fall into ruin. And after Solomon dies, uh, uh, his son Rehoboam takes over and things are going to go south really fast. While Solomon was still alive, God raised up three adversaries. Now, what's interesting about this is God planted these adversaries years before Solomon's sin. And so time is no bounding factor with God. He's not saying, okay, Solomon, you did wrong. I'm going to raise this adversary up for you now. God is already in the process of raising this up. Three adversaries. The one we want to talk about is Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam was a superintendent for some of this forced labor that Solomon was, was using. And while he was a superintendent, he heard of all of their discontent and their frustration. And Jeroboam decides that uh, he's going to do something about it. Solomon got some bad vibes about Jeroboam, threatened to kill him, and Jeroboam hightailed it to Egypt. Fast forward a few years, Solomon's dead, Jeroboam comes back. And when he comes back, he gathers up this labor force, and they go into Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they say, hey, listen, your dad was pretty brutal to us. It was a heavy burden of work, it was a heavy burden of taxes, Good news. You can do better. You've got the structures. You've got the army. You've got the land. You don't need this labor. Lighten our taxes, lighten our labor. Things can be better. Rehoboam says, let me think about it. Three days. Sure. So they leave. Rehoboam brings in his counselors. Counselors say exactly what Jeroboam said. You have the land. You have the building. You have the wealth. We don't need more. Let's do this. Let's gain the hearts of the people. Rehoboam didn't like that, fired his old council, brought in some young dudes like him. These are my people. Hey, guys, what should I do? Rule them with your thumb. Show them who's boss, Rehoboam. Sounds good. I like that advice. Rehoboam goes in. They, Jeroboam comes back with his group. Rehoboam says, thanks for coming in. I wanted to talk to you. Actually, I'm doubling down. Your labor is going to be harder and your taxes are going to be greater for even Bothering to think that you could somehow get less from me. Jeroboam and the people laugh and literally say, Who's David to us anyway? And they all just leave, and all of the other tribes outside of Judah basically abandon Judah. Suddenly, Judah's all by himself. Like Rehoboam's kingdom just completely dissipates. Uh, So it's just one tribe in Judah, and the rest of uh, the kingdom forms uh, what's known as the northern kingdom of Israel. And what's fascinating is that is in the land of Samaria. So this tension is going to stick. If you know the New Testament, you understand the undergirdings of the parable of the Good Samaritan, you understand the Samaritan woman at the well, and the conversation that Jesus had, you know that uh, Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they are going to clash with each other for the next uh, centuries and centuries to come uh, because of the schism that happened. So at this point, um, we're gonna. it's just basically a lot of bad kings do a lot of bad things. Like the, we just, it just goes down the line. Did wicked in the sight of the Lord and was judged for the Lord accord of it. And he died. And the next king came up and they did wickedly in the sight of the Lord. And it gets to chapter 16 and we have Omri, the king who, he did more wicked than anyone else in the sight of the Lord. And then Omri's son came to rule. And that is Ahab. In the 38th year, in verse 29 of chapter 16 uh, in 1 Kings, In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, what's amazing about that is that it was just said about Omri. So Omri took took, took the cake when it came to most wicked king. And then Ahab immediately tops him. And look at the chief reason for that. Verse 31, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Oh, see, I went so fast, I forgot to tell you. After Jeroboam left from Rehoboam, Jeroboam started worshiping pagan gods and did wickedly in the sight of the Lord. So immediately, all those tribes go out and they do wickedly in the sight of the Lord. So we're seeing all of God's people going away. But following in those paths, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab just made the decision. It's going to be Baal. Or Baal's sort of a generic term. as best we know, that would be this would be the god of Hadad, uh, the, the storm god, the god of fertility. And, uh, and Ahab made an Asherah, and that would be a, a statue that was like a, a goddess that's kind of the mother of gods. And so this kind of fall, comes from Sidon, uh, where Jezebel's from, and this is where uh, this Ahab chooses to plant his flag here. We are going to worship uh, Baal. And what we have here is uh, pagan worship. It's, it's more worship in the high places. Uh, you, you'll see later it's worship with men doing vile things, cutting on their body. Uh, there is even involved in worship of Baal for the purpose of future fertility, uh, it, whether it be crops or people, uh, child sacrifices involved. So we get into deep, ugly pagan worship in this time. And Ahab brings the sin. And this is when God says, enough, I'm done with the wickedness. And he sends a prophet like the world has never seen. Uh, And that is Elijah. And just quickly flying through, Elijah's going to come in right away. And he tells Ahab, uh, listen, there's not going to be any rain until God says so. Now, Baal, who they're worshiping, is the storm god. And Elijah, so immediately God is asserting his authority over these false gods. Again, a, a great echo back to Exodus and the plagues that God brought into Egypt. Each one going after a different Egyptian god. Here, God is asserting, asserting himself over Baal, and he says, it's not going to be any rain until I say so. And Elijah's going to go away, and for we're going to, again, if we had time, we would go through this, but a bunch of uh, interesting lessons Elijah's going to learn before God sends Elijah back three years later and says, I want you to tell Ahab it's going to rain. And when Elijah goes back in, He doesn't just walk up and tell Ahab that. He issues him a challenge. He says, I want you to come up to Mount Carmel, a high place. And I want you to bring the prophets of Baal with you. So 450 prophets of Baal, that's the number we get. They all come to the high place of Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, I want you to build an altar. I want you to send to Baal. I want you to put cattle on the altar. Not a lot of cattle left. There's been a famine for three years. And he says, I want you to put cattle on the altar. I want you to ask your God, to send fire down on the altar. I'm going to go rebuild this altar. This was one of the altars to the Lord that existed in a high place before the temple was built. After the temple was built, they destroyed a lot of these high places. Elijah rebuilds this now so th- you have to keep in mind, if, it's a, if this is a football game, this is an away game, okay? He's on their turf right now, and he's going to rebuild this altar. He says, you do this. I'm going to be over here. I've got to fix this altar up. So as you know, they go on. They're, they're begging their god to send down fire. Of course, nothing's coming down. Elijah mocks them, says, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's sleeping. Call louder. And they start cutting themselves, shouting, doing all sorts of various barbaric things to try to get Baal's attention Finally, Elijah says, all right, my turn. He calls all of the people of Israel that are there witnessing. He says, come around, come closer. He has them pour water on the altar three times. Again, not much water left. Been a drought for three years. But there's there actually a uh, creek down below that still has some water to it. They pour this water on. He calls down fire from heaven from God so that you may see who God is. fire comes down immediately. Victory is won. Elijah wastes no time. He says, gather up all the prophets of Baal. They take them down to a creek that has this kind of amphitheater-like setting at the base of Mount Carmel, and they slaughter all the prophets of Baal. This is, without doubt, the greatest victory for, in the name of Yahweh, over pagan gods since the people of Israel left Egypt. And what happens immediately after, when word eats Jezebel, she sends word out to Elijah, says, give me 24 hours, well not 24 hours, a day, 24 hours, uh, see if you're not like the prophets of Baal. Now Elijah just literally took down all of the ideology of Baal, and now this queen threatens him, and of course what he does is go, yep, and runs, because he fully believes she's going to kill him. And Elijah, in chapter 19, Elijah is going to, uh, and for time's sake there, we're going to skip reading this passage in in 1 Kings 19, but Elijah basically tells God, and this is the second time he mentions, I and I alone am left. He's kind of got this separatist complex where it's just me, and he tells God, look, I did it. We 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 fought a great fight, God, but she's coming to kill me. So can you just end my life now? Like this is done. I'm the only one that's left. It's not working out. And uh, and God tells uh, Elijah a few things. One, go anoint Elisha. He's going to take over. But then uh, God promises him in uh, at the at the end. He promises him that listen. There are seven thousand people who I've preserved for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, first of all, that's awesome. That's a lot more than Elijah being by himself. It's if I do the math, that's 7,000 times more. It's great. What's sad is though, at the same time is we only heard, I don't know, 15 chapters before that these people numbered the sands of the sea by by, by sea. And there are 7,000 left. But what we see here is God keeping his promise. I'm going to preserve this line. There's 7,000 left, Elijah, and it's not gonna go to just one, and it's not gonna go to just none. I'm preserving this line because I'm keeping my word. Now, Ahab's gonna go on and do a bunch of bad things, and eventually Ahab's gonna die um, one of the big triggers for this uh, is the, the final straw is Ahab uh, or through his whining is going to lead Jezebel to bring up false charges uh, against a vineyard owner uh, that Ahab wanted the vineyard and they're going to stone the vineyard owner based on the false charges and give that to Ahab and that's going to be it. God's going to say, you're wiped out. Ahab actually repents of that. He actually repents and seeks forgiveness and God actually says, Okay, because you repented, uh, the destru- you're still going to die, but the destruction I pro- prophesied in your kingdom, that's going to happen because of your son. And by the way, that happens. That's, uh, that's Jesse. I'm still in Jesse's thunder again. But yeah, that, that's exactly how it's going to go down. Uh, the line's going to end uh, with Ahab's son. But and there we have it. In short, that's 1 Kings. Like in all it's going, it, it's sobering reality. But the takeaway here is this. God kept his promise. In spite of all the sin and all the recklessness, God preserved his people and the line of David. And here's the crazy thing. Like, it's going to get way worse before it gets better. We're going to do 2 Kings next week. This downward spiral is going to continue, and yet God is still going to preserve this line. And this actually leads us, I know this is coming at the end, but to our big idea here, Uh, that we can trust God to be faithful to keep his promises. We can trust God to be faithful to keep his promises because we see God maintaining his promises through 124 years of just habitual sin and rebellion and rejection, and yet God is faithful. We can rest in the fact that God will not fail us in spite of us. And our sins, our crawling to the world, our pleasures, our lusts, our pride, our addictions, they cannot get in the way of, they cannot separate us from God's love or his promises to us. And for many of us, that's a struggle. It's a struggle to consider because we can't fathom an unbroken promise. We have broken so many ourselves We have people who we love dearly break dear and precious promises to us. We have a hard time understanding what a real unbreakable promise is. And that's when we must focus not on the incredibleness of the promise, like the promise that was made to Abraham, pretty incredible promise, but the awesomeness of the promise giver. Uh, one verse I wanted to share with you is Psalm 138, verse 8. I believe this was shared earlier. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of Your hands. David wrote that. David had no clue the weight of what he was writing. That purpose that was going to get fulfilled. That purpose when he says, don't forsake the work of your hands. Oh, God's not going to forsake it. This is how much God's going to take it. God is, the entire royal line is going to get wiped out like from authority. You're going to go from captivity to captivity. Every time there's some sort of rebellion to rise up, you're going to get brought back in under someone else's rule. The line of David's going to fade out so much that it's going to live in a city that at some point cynical men are going to go ask, can any good thing come out of Nazareth like what can come out of there and yet there in that city dwell the line of david and when gabriel appears before joseph and says don't put mary out she's carrying messiah joseph is not simply thinking about oh well i got to do morally the right thing i don't want her, the baby to be born illegitimately. I, I have to take her in. Joseph knows he's the line. He knows, he knows what he is. And he knows in that moment that he has to say yes. Like, how many of us ever get our destiny just put out like right in front of us like that? <laughs> but that's exactly what happened to Joseph in that moment. Um, and uh, God was raising up a young woman full of virtue who'd carry the Messiah in the same town as the man from David's house. God was actively working to keep his promise. When things seemed bleak and people in Israel had just forgotten most of the prophecies that were related uh, to the Lord, God was keeping his promise. So what does that mean for us? Well, this means that God's promises to us are real. They don't fail. It means we can trust God to be faithful. It means, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a faithful work, a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. We can trust God to do that because we've seen God do the most unreal thing in keeping his promise in spite of all men's sins. So when we fail, if you're here today and you're like me, I fail all the time, I constantly struggle with sin. God can't use me. Lies. That's not coming from the Holy Spirit. Because if you are a child of God and a follower of Jesus, there is a promise that God has started in something in you and he's going to complete it. We can believe that. We can believe that because Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that when we become followers of Jesus, we trust Christ to be saviors of our sins. It teaches us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the return of Christ. It is the down payment that God is making to guarantee that we are his children. We can believe that. God promises it. We can trust God's promises because of what we see in 1 Kings. We know from 1 John 1.9 that we read today that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to be forgiving us and cleansing us. And what we didn't read today is, two, is chapter 2, verse 1, where if there is sin in anyone, we have an advocate with the Father in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. We can trust it. We can trust that when he's that advocate, Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus lives to ever be making intercession on our behalf. Romans 8.34, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father constantly interceding for us. Does that sound unfathomable to you? Don't let it be. It's a promise and we can trust it because the promise, because God showed himself faithful throughout the kings that he will keep his promises in spite of the kings. Because 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 teaches us, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So God kept his promise to Abraham and David. The only way that could be done was to keep those through by sending Jesus to redeem us and to reign and rule forever. That was how he kept his promises, and he did that throughout a land and generations of sin. And he's made promises to us too. He's made promises that we can rest in. We don't need to wallow as Elijah wallowed, thinking that, "This is it, too late, I'm done. That's not what we. That's not how we need to react. We can rest in God's promises. Amidst all the chaos in the world, all the turmoil that goes on in our hearts, we can trust him. We can trust God to be faithful, to keep his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a promise giver. Some souls we know, good souls, they make promises. We appreciate them. We don't have a lot of faith in them. Father, when you make promises, they are promises no man can make. And so it's hard to believe them because our faith is weak. When we find ourselves in sin, when we find ourselves rejecting you or your truth or following away or going our own way, when the Holy Spirit convicts us and opens our eyes, we see how far we are from you. We feel guilt. And it's hard to trust your promises. Help us, Father. Thank you for being the promise giver. Thank you for your promises to intercede for us, to complete that good work with which you started for us. And now may we go here with that hope, with that expectation, and may we live a life full of love and grace uh, in sinlessness in a way that would set this world uh, to a confounding fire because they have no explanation for it other than it shows them Jesus. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name.